Welcome to A King's Reign. I am the host of this series, Andrew Schlecht. If you listened to David Aldridge's interview with Eric Spolstra in one of our previous episodes, you know how much some in Cleveland hated LeBron. To this day, I had never really felt like that kind of just overall animosity out of a crowd. Things were ugly between the city and their previous chosen one. There was the decision, the Dan Gilbert letter, the fact that the Cavs immediately became horrible once LeBron left. So how the hell did Cleveland get LeBron back? The Athletics' Jason Lloyd, who literally wrote the book, The Blueprint, on Cleveland's plan to bring LeBron James back home. Details how the Cavs pulled off that return. Then, Joe Varden with Channing Frye and Ty Lu on the incredible, historic, amazing Cavaliers 2016 title. There was no way in God's green earth we were gonna lose that game. We could have played Jesus, Gandhi, Buddha, whoever else in my grandma out there, and we we're gonna beat the shit out of them. And Marcus Thompson and Zena Keda look at the ever-changing rivalry of LeBron and Steph Curry. But first, here's Jason Lloyd on the return of King James to Cleveland. It's difficult to pinpoint exactly when the Cavaliers first hatched the plan to lure LeBron James back to Cleveland, but it's easy to identify the moment they knew it was possible. February 16, 2012. That's the day LeBron was back inside Quicken Loans Arena, his home for the first seven years of his career, for a practice with the Miami Heat. The Cavs and Heat were scheduled to play the next night, and LeBron and his Miami teammates were on the cramped upstairs practice court where James spent a number of days early in his career before the Cavs built a beautiful practice facility in the suburbs not far from his home. This was during LeBron's second season in Miami, and it was the day before his third game back in this arena as a member of the Heat. His first trip back in December 2010 remains the most hostile, vitriolic crowd I've ever seen. For seven seasons, LeBron James wore the colors of the Cleveland Cavaliers. Then came the decision, and tonight comes the return. And moments ago, he took to the court in Cleveland. The league provided Miami with extra security for LeBron's first game back. There was a heavy police presence and bomb-sniffing dogs all around the arena. LeBron James and the Miami Heat at Quicken Loans Arena on a night unlike any other. Moondog, the Cavs' mascot, even playfully took the court before the game wearing a bulletproof vest. At least, I think he was joking. I remember leaving the arena following shoot-around that morning and seeing extra police where I normally don't see them. Is this normal? I asked one of the cops. Nope, he responded. Only for that asshole. So, you get the idea. The city of Cleveland felt betrayed that James went on national television and embarrassed them by, quote, taking his talents to South Beach. Um, <clears throat> like I said before, um, I feel like it's, it's going to give me the best opportunity to, to win and to win for multiple years. A city that has long been beaten up and ridiculed now had one of their own break up with them in the most publicly humiliating way possible. We've supported him for seven years now, and for him to go on there and drag us through the mud for seven years and stab us in the heart. They were hurt, and this was their chance to let him know. 
I hope he never wins anything in Miami. He is dead to me. James's return to Cleveland in December 2010 was 20,000 voices of unified hatred toward one individual. Now, here we were back in that same arena a year later, and LeBron was innocently asked if he could ever see himself playing for the Cavs again. It seemed outrageous given how fans still felt about him and the fact Cavs owner Dan Gilbert wrote that letter eviscerating James the night of the decision. You remember the one. It forever changed the way we view Comic Sans. Cleveland Cavaliers owner Dan Gilbert has written a letter blasting former Cavs star LeBron James. It reads, As you now know, our former hero, who grew up in the very region that he deserted this evening, is no longer a Cleveland Cavalier. Gilbert spent all day crafting that letter. This was announced with a several-day narcissistic, self-promotional buildup culminating with a national TV special of his, quote, decision, unlike anything ever witnessed in the history of sports and probably the history of entertainment. The final version of Gilbert's letter was heavily edited. Can you imagine what the first version looked like? I want to make one statement to you tonight. I personally guarantee that the Cleveland Cavaliers will win an NBA championship before the self-titled former King wins one. You can take it to the bank. There's no way LeBron could ever come back. Or could he? I think it would be great, James said on February 16th, 2012. It would be fun to play in front of these fans again. I had a lot of fun times here. If I decide to come back, hopefully the fans will accept me. Those few sentences set off alarms inside the Cavaliers organization. Chris Grant, the Cavs general manager, never really spoke in specific terms about bringing James back, even internally with other staffers. But it was always sort of the unspoken plan. It was part of the reason he never wanted to trade Anderson Verizal during the Cavs rebuild. While Verizal was the team's most attractive trade asset, he also happened to be close with LeBron. Those who worked in the building told me it didn't make any sense. Why not trade Andy and add to the war chest of draft picks the Cavs were compiling? There must be something else to this. That 2010-11 Cavs season, James' first year in Miami, felt like purgatory in Cleveland. You look back now at the not top 10, their worst 10 Cavalier moments of what's turned out to be a winless month, and we start January 21st against the Bucks. The Cavs didn't have any draft picks that summer, and they didn't really sign anyone of note in free agency. The roster was awful and filled with guys who weren't really NBA players. Antoine Jameson, no. Demardo Samuels, not so much. Jameson, one more time. Samuels, one more time. Four misses from underneath. They lost 102-88. They lost 26 games in a row, which at the time was a record for all four major sports leagues. That season was like going to a funeral and burying the body, then digging it up the next day and doing the whole thing all over again. O for January, O for 2011. On January 11th, the Lakers beat them by 55. They lost 63 games their first year without LeBron. The only bright spot in an otherwise miserable season occurred at the trade deadline and what ultimately became the best deal in franchise history. Grant sent Mo Williams to the Los Angeles Clippers in February 2011 for Baron Davis's bloated contract and the Clippers' unprotected first-round pick in a draft that was just four months away. That's how desperate former Clippers owner Donald Sterling was to get off the remaining money on Davis's contract. The trade saved the Clippers about $15 million. To Dan Gilbert's credit, he was willing to take the risk and write that massive check just for a lottery ticket that had less than a 3% chance of cashing. The third pick in this year's draft goes to the Washington Wizards. The Cavs indeed hit the lottery. The second pick will be made by the Orlando Magic. 
they turned that 2.8% chance into the number one pick in the draft. And that means the number one pick in the 2013 NBA draft goes to the Cleveland Cavaliers. The Cavs also had their own high lottery pick, which ultimately landed fourth. They selected Kyrie Irving first and Tristan Thompson fourth. The rebuild was officially underway. It became evident pretty quickly during Irving's rookie season, he could be a pretty special player even though drafting him was a risk. He played only 11 games during his freshman season at Duke and still went first in the draft. James was impressed with Irving's game even at his young age. The Cavs watched Irving's first few months and realized they had a prodigy. Blues and Oz for the crowd here at the queue. Kyrie back the other way. The bottom! They're putting on a show! And a nod of respect from Kobe for Kyrie Irving as they both were superb performers here tonight. Suddenly, the idea of James returning didn't seem so crazy. Now, inside their own building, two years before he could become a free agent, James spoke directly to the Cavs and told them it wasn't so crazy after all. The plan was always to rebuild through the draft, stockpile valuable draft picks, and preserve cap space for a few years. You know, just in case. The Cavs knew they were going to be bad. Really bad. Just like the organization tanked to draft LeBron in 2003, now they were tanking to try and get him back. For 15 years, the Cavs' sole focus revolved around LeBron James. First it was, we have to tank to try and get him, which became, oh my god, we won the lottery, to now, we have to win, to, oh no, we lost him, how do we get him back, to finally, oh my god, he's coming back, now we really have to win. When he departed from Miami in 2010, the organization crumbled. They averaged 54 losses a year during James' four years in Miami. They also won the draft lottery three times and picked fourth twice. Unfortunately, their best draft under Grant was that first one that netted Irving and Thompson. The Cavs entered the 2013-14 season, James' final year under contract in Miami, believing they had to make the playoffs in order to have any real chance at getting him to come home. They fired Byron Scott and brought back Mike Brown. They signed free agents and chewed up all that valuable cap space they spent years protecting. The pressure to win was intense. Cleveland did improve, quite drastically actually, but it wasn't enough to make the playoffs. Grant, who spent years meticulously building this plan to bring James home, was fired four months before James' free agency, following a particularly embarrassing loss to the Lakers. Brown was fired for a second time by the Cavs after the season. LeBron, meanwhile, returned to the finals with the Heat for the fourth consecutive year. Miami lost the championship to San Antonio, but the Cavs thought they lost their chance too. David Griffin had the interim title removed as GM and sought out to hire a coach. The Cavs believed missing out on the playoffs also meant missing out on James. No one in the building actually believed he was coming back, so they moved forward on offseason business as usual, which meant hiring a coach and preparing for the draft and free agency. Throughout the coaching search, Gilbert became enamored with David Blatt, who spent his entire career coaching overseas. Gilbert loved thinking outside the box. This time, he went outside the continent and across the Atlantic. David Blatt is going to bring some of the most innovative approaches found in professional basketball anywhere on the globe, Gilbert said in the news release announcing Blatt's hire. Time and time again, from Russia to Israel and several other prominent head coaching jobs in between, David has done one thing, win. Hiring Blatt seemed like a sure signal the Cavs were punting on the idea of James coming home. They went about routine off-season business such as scheduling free agent meetings and welcoming Gordon Hayward, a restricted free agent, into town for a visit. 
Hayward arrived expecting an offer sheet, but it never came. The Cavs heard from James Camp during Hayward's visit and told them to just hold on, be patient, and don't do anything rash. So they shook Hayward's hand and sent him on his way out without making an offer. Four days later, Dan Gilbert was on a plane to Miami to meet with James and apologize for his damaging letter. Gilbert's trip was a necessary and meaningful step in repairing the fractured relationship and clearing the way for James' return. But make no mistake, that trip did not completely repair the relationship. The two have never been close and never will be, but they ultimately realized they needed each other to get where they wanted to go. James wanted to deliver his hometown region a championship, and Gilbert clearly wasn't going to get there without him. Gilbert left Miami with no assurances James was coming home, but he received clear instructions, get to max space. That meant the Cavs had to undo some of the mistakes from the previous summer. They dumped contracts, cleared the necessary cap space to be able to offer a max contract, and then they waited. Five days after James and Gilbert met in Miami, David Griffin was in his office at the Cavs practice facility getting ready to fly to Las Vegas for the NBA Summer League. Most of the Cavs staff was already in Vegas and Griffin was milling around his office in jeans and flip-flops with the television behind him turned to ESPN with the volume down low. LeBron's agent, Rich Paul, called Griffin and informed him of the stunning news. James was coming home. Griffin collapsed to the floor of his office in part jubilation and part fear. The hard part was only beginning. LeBron James was coming home. Now they had to win. Nothing short of a championship was acceptable. We'll be back with Joe Varden's look at the 2016 Cavs championship after a word from our sponsors. of the NBA plays basketball to win a game, win an MVP, maybe win a playoff series. If you have a chance, win a chip. One. He's playing every single game to be the greatest player ever. That is the pressure, reality, understanding of every player who plays with LeBron James, according to his former Cleveland Cavaliers teammate, Channing Frye. So you have to understand where he's where he sees and where we see and how we could be, we're just steps for him to do what he has to do, right? Which is a huge responsibility, but it's also fun, it's free. It's like, no matter what I do, it's always his fault. And I tell him that all the time. I said, my job is to make sure you don't get double teamed, right? And he he loved it. Channing Frye was one of LeBron's teammates when he accomplished what many consider to be the greatest single achievement of his illustrious career. The kid from Akron delivered the Cavaliers' first championship in franchise history. More than that, it was the first championship for any major pro sports team in Cleveland since 1964. And it was the first championship in NBA history that a team down 3-1 in the finals came back to win. One dribble, steps back, puts up a three, won't go, rebound tip taken by Spades, final seconds, it's over, it's over! Cleveland is a city of champions once again. The Cavaliers are NBA champions. For a sports city like Cleveland, whose heartbreaks are better remembered than their glory days, the drive, the fumble, the shot, the 1997 World Series, and yes, even the decision. LeBron James returned home and fulfilled the promise he made by bringing Cleveland a championship. 
Cleveland's long sports nightmare has ended. The drought is over. 52 years. Time to celebrate a title. All the magic, the dominance, the glory. They aren't something a player like LeBron just decides to do when the calendar flips to June. It is an endless pursuit, a 365-day battle to reach for the top of a mountain that's too tall for most to even see. LeBron would later call it chasing ghosts. He meant that he was trying to catch Michael Jordan's six championships and five MVPs, maybe pass him as the greatest of all time. That's what the 2016 finals meant to LeBron. Cleveland! This is for you! Ow! And when Channing Frye was traded to Cleveland on February 18th, 2016, he started to see what that chase really looks like. Some guys come, you know, when they go on the Cavs or they go start playing with LeBron, they want to do his workouts. And Richard and I always have a little bet of how many days before they absolutely fall off the wagon and just realize they can't do it. They can't do it. You cannot. No one has been able to keep up with his schedule ever. It's a computer. As much as we talk about Kawhi Leonard's a computer, LeBron is a computer. It's just everything is so regimented. It's why he could do this for 20 years. Fry was coming into a fractured locker room when he arrived in Cleveland. Earlier in the season, the Cavaliers fired coach David Blatt despite the team being in first place in the East and having gone to the NBA Finals the previous season. Blatt had no real connection with LeBron, which soured the mood within the team. To fix this, the Cavs moved assistant coach Tyron Lue into the top spot. Channing says before he was dealt to Cleveland, he could tell from the outside just how off things were inside the Cavs locker room. They played us in Orlando earlier that season like i mean maybe a month before so i was like they stayed the night and i was like all right rich let's go get a margarita at rocco's tacos right the coaching staff is there you know a bunch of the guys are there so richard comes we eat richard's like yo come back to the hotel our lobby bar we'll you know sit and keep drinking we're not doing anything tomorrow and neither are you i was like you're damn right i'm not and uh so we go back and like there's kevin and there's braun and there's you know the whole team so i was literally with the team like but i was like this is weird because y'all just beat the shit out of us and I'm just hanging out with y'all. When I got traded, I was like, holy shit, like we're winning games and y'all get to fuck each other. <laughs> what is this mess? I was like, wait a second. Y'all are unhappy and you're winning? You're winning by 30? This Richard person Fry keeps referring to is Richard Jefferson, one of Channing's closest friends in the NBA who was already on the Cavs when Fry joined the team. The two friends quickly realized that the thing the Cavs needed most was to build some real chemistry heading into the playoffs. And I put everyone on the text chain. What's everyone doing? Shut up, Channing. No, you shut up. But it got everyone to kind of talk. Or it's like, yo, who's watching this game? Or, hey, does anybody want to go watch the game for brunch? I'd randomly just send them something probably inappropriate or rude or funny random times at night. And so I think the first week or two, people are like, man, what the fuck is wrong with Channing? And then all of a sudden it became like, yo, after practice, before the plane, we have a couple hours, let's go to brunch. Now you get six or seven people to connect, right? Or it's like, hey, 
we're going over to Kevin's before we go to watch the Super Bowl somewhere. And Kevin's like, why don't we just watch it at my house? So we're like, wait, what? And that was when I think our team really started to click was when all the groups started to connect. You know, I, I think for us, it was like basketball was the fun part and the easy part. Communicating and, and learning each other off the court was hard for everyone. That goes for LeBron, too. He was wound pretty tight by the time Blatt was fired. He didn't trust the coach and had trouble connecting personally with the team's other two stars, Kyrie Irving and Kevin Love. It led to some strange moments, like LeBron refusing to allow teammates to participate in pregame introductions, or LeBron repeatedly giving different instructions than Blatt gave in the huddle or in the locker room. For me, from my point of view, he was very focused, but he was, I think he was missing the other part of basketball, right? I think for him, when he started to have fun, when he started to really embrace both sides of like what this journey, this NBA thing is, you really start to see the best version of them. Uh, but we would call him out like, Bron, you're, you're bullshitting today. Come on. I mean, his bullshit is a little different. Come on. What's up? Like, you're not connected, right? The biggest thing for me is already having a relationship with LeBron. And so that made it easier to tell him the truth and, you know, hold him accountable. Originally, Ty Lue did not want to take over for Blatt and only did so after Doc Rivers talked him into it. Lou, who was Blatt's top assistant, making more than a million dollars a year, was widely respected as a former player, including by LeBron. The new coach was someone LeBron would listen to, and Ty was going to make sure of it. I think the first thing I had to do was meet with K-Love, Kyrie, and LeBron and just get those guys on the, all three of those guys on the same page. And I thought, you know, we're only going to go as far as those three guys. And so with me, the biggest thing was like, you know, K-Love, he had to sacrifice more than anybody because, you know, we asked him to do a lot of different things that he was not accustomed to. You know, being in Minnesota, carrying a franchise for so long, um, and then having him to take a back seat to Kyrie and LeBron, you know, was tough. But Kevin was whatever it was to win a championship. So I think getting those three guys on the same page and understanding what I needed from the guys every single night and those – three guys had to lead the team, you know? And so, yeah, we was in first place, but like you said, the spirit wasn't right. Um, guys weren't really getting along like we needed to get along. And the locker room was, you know, a bit messy. And so um, those three guys, I needed those three guys to clean it up. And that's what they did. From Channing Fry's point of view, Teron Liu was crucial in giving LeBron peace of mind that the Cavaliers had a coach who could match what the rival Golden State Warriors had on their bench. Let me ask you this. Do you think Steve Kerr is a top five coach of all time? Okay. So if you're LeBron and you're the best player on the court and you've shown you can win, you can win games, but the guy on the, not only are you facing Clay, Andre Iguodala, Steph, Draymond, you know, Sean Livingston, David Lee, David West, right? All these guys, you have this coach that's a top five coach. You can't be in the moment and be the coach at the same time. So it's not like David Blatt was a bad coach. We just needed someone that could play chess with Steve Kerr, right, at that level, which which Lou did. I think when Braun and Lou really started to get vibing, that's when also you started to see it. Because Lou was like, yes, thank you for your opinion, but we're going to do it this way. Thank you. I appreciate you doing this, but we're going to do it. Here's my vision for this. And when that started to come about, Braun really started to kind of stop thinking 
the whole game and started thinking like court stuff. The players, all of them, appreciated Lou's communication style, especially when it came to lineup decisions. I think one thing that changed was Kyrie was the first guy to come off, right, and go with the second unit. It really didn't work because Kyrie is a ball handler one-on-one guy. So then we talked to Braun and we saw it in film and we we're like, let Kyrie stay with the first unit, right? They have, you know, Tristan could get a rebound. Braun come with the second unit, right? So you could just run and you have just skilled guys moving around you. And then you add a JR, you add a Shump, you know, whatever. And I think giving Kyrie that first unit and like saying, hey, you take over this six minutes and you go, I think helped communicate them or help like navigate that relationship to where when it was like crunchy time, they both knew how to like communicate with each other. It was a give and take. For a team light on chemistry, the stability Lou provided when it came to lineups and roles helped smooth over a lot of the cracks that were bursting open under Black. For me, T. Lou was like, yo Channing, this week I'm probably gonna play Richard, here's why. You're gonna play you know, 10 to 20 minutes, Richard's gonna get 20 to 30. And he goes in a month, but I need you to stay in shape because look right here, we play a string of big guys. I need you to be ready this month to play flip-flop with Richard. So I'm thinking, oh, this is great. Like as a vet, I'm understanding. And then in the playoffs, it made it seamless, right? Because now I'm personnel-based. Our whole team was personnel-based. We played Detroit when Aaron Baines went in. I would check myself in. Or when Marcus Morris would check in, Richard would check in for me. So like we knew the rotations. So imagine a veteran team basically running on itself, by itself, knowing which plays when which guys come in. Now you put Braun in that situation. He's unstoppable. Because all he has to do is be him. The Cavaliers entered the 2016 playoffs as the top seed in the East. They swept both the Detroit Pistons and then the Atlanta Hawks. Cleveland had also swept Atlanta the season before, when the Hawks entered the playoffs as the top seed in the East with a 60-win team. As Channing Fry lays out, the Cavaliers were not lacking in confidence heading into those early playoff matchups. Not only did we have the personnel, it started to be a mental thing. Every city we went to, we had this huge boombox, and we would play their music. Like when we were in Detroit, we're playing Eminem or Kid Rock or... You know, all these dudes, but loud. Like to us, that was a little, it, you know, now I look back, it's a little arrogant, but we were just like, we, we had to have that attitude, right? Because everybody wanted to beat us and we refused to lose. In the Eastern Conference Finals, the Cavs faced off against the Kyle Lowry, DeMar DeRozan led Toronto Raptors. LeBron and crew steamrolled the Raptors early on, winning the first two games of the series by a combined 50 points. More than that, LeBron seemed to be toying with Toronto. In Game 1, he made 11 of 13 shots, as though no one was guarding him. It felt like this was going to be another short series for Cleveland, but the Raptors had a different idea. With the series back north of the border, Toronto took both of the home games. Kyrie Irving was 3 of 19 in Game 3. Kevin Love was 4 of 14 in Game 4. Suddenly, the conference finals were tied. The Cavs, however, almost seemed disinterested. 
you know, I knew it was going to be a tough series, which our guys didn't think so. And so, I mean, I just thought we didn't really take those guys serious, which we should have. You know, I really did, and our coaching staff did. But our players just thought that we had an advantage with those guys, even stemming back from the year before. And so um, I knew it was going to be a tough series, but we had to really get our mindset right and, you know, lock in. Let's just, you know, win one game, and then we can celebrate from there. But let's lock in to win one game. And I thought our guys really did a good job of doing that. I think we was up 25, 27, you know, in that game in game six in Toronto. And so we took care of business. Games five and six of the series were a mockery. The Cavs won them by a combined 64 points, with the Raptors unable to score more than 90 in either game. LeBron and the Cavs were the kings of the Eastern Conference again. What it meant was a rematch against the Golden State Warriors in the finals, who had beaten the Cavs in six games the year before, while Kevin Love and Kyrie Irving were out with season-ending surgeries. And this Warriors team was supposed to be the team of destiny setting the record for the most wins in a single season with 73. You have to really physically want to hate them. You can't feel any type of intimidation or, you know, you respect them, but it's not like that. It's just like somebody that you, you can't go to sleep, you can't breathe if you don't beat them. That's the only way to beat them. It literally is because you have to be so locked in because no team in the league right now has that much firepower and runs that system and is comfortable doing that system like they are. So if you're not locked in to where every single thing matters, are you grabbing Steph, right? Are you grabbing Clay? Are you scratching them? Are you pulling on them? Are you elbowing them when you get a chance? Are you boxing Draymond out? Are you elbowing him when you go? Like you have to, you have to play that way the Warriors took Game 1 of the NBA Finals by 15 points. The Cavs limited Golden State's starting unit, but it was the Warrior bench of Andre Iguodala, Sean Livingston, and Leandro Barbosa that carried their team to victory. The trio combined for 42 points, shooting a combined 18 of 24 from the field, while collectively not committing a single turnover. A strange game for us. We were not used to having both Steph and Clay off like that with their shooting but the one thing we've talked about all year is if we defend and take care of the ball then we're always going to have somebody uh, score enough points for us and um, whether it's the starters or the bench the next night an off night in the series was june 3rd it was a rainy night in san francisco where the Cavs and most of the media covering the series were staying i remember sitting in whatever bar we were at sipping on something and watching the wall-to-wall -wall coverage on ESPN of the passing of Muhammad Ali. The boxer once named Sportsman of the Century has died. Muhammad Ali was 74 years old, born January 17th in 1942. And as we drank into the wee hours of the morning, while all of Cleveland was asleep and the rain poured down in San Francisco, we couldn't escape the constant tributes and biographies of Ali. Neither could LeBron. And I was sitting there and somebody whispered something in his ear. And we we're sitting there with the Nike folks, our regular crew, having a glass of wine. And we had been there an hour or two. So it's like a couple glasses. He was like, all right, y'all see you. Goes up, changes clothes and goes and works out for like two hours. And I was like, what the fuck is wrong with this dude? And they were like, Muhammad Ali had such an influence on him to me. If that's what was the 
that changed his attitude about the sense of urgency of what was happening at that moment. After that, that's when I saw he was a little different for Braun is a lot. LeBron had found his first bit of extra motivation, but it was not enough to turn the series. Not yet. The Warriors exerted their dominance in Game 2, winning 110-77. to For the Cavs, Kevin Love was a non-factor and left the game with a concussion. Kyrie had a bad shooting night. LeBron committed seven turnovers. Down 2-0, the Cavs were desperate to get back home to Cleveland. Welcome back to Cleveland. Only elimination games are must-win situations. But tonight for the Cavaliers, this is as close as it gets. In Game 3, on their home court, the Cavs broke through in the series, slaughtering the Warriors by 30 points. Now it was Steph Curry committing turnovers, six in all. Draymond Green had a terrible night from the floor, shooting two of eight. With Kevin Love out for the game in concussion protocol, Teron Liu went with Richard Jefferson, making the Cavaliers smaller, but creating a lineup better able to match the Warrior guards. I, I like some of the stuff. Richard Jefferson is just causing havoc in there. LeBron and Kyrie elevated their games, scoring a combined 62 points. The Cavs' role players came alive at home, too. Iguodala tries to get it back. James picks it up, throws it ahead. Smith, corner three. It's good. J.R. Smith went for 20 on efficient shooting. Tristan Thompson posted a double-double. Difficult shot there as he was double-teamed. Thompson, another offensive rebound. Put back and a foul. Tristan Thompson with 10 boards. I want to stand up and give him a standing ovation. After the game, Warriors coach Steve Kerr called his team soft. We weren't ready to play. Obviously, they just punched us right in the mouth and right in the beginning. Um, we're turning the ball over like crazy, soft. Um, we were extremely soft. This all led to Game 4, which would end in another Cavs loss, but produced a moment that changed the entire complexion of the series and altered basketball history. Green and James joying at each other while play continues. Iguodala the pull-up. That won't go. And a double foul is going to be called. Channing Fry getting in between LeBron James and Sensed. With three minutes left in Game 4, LeBron and Draymond Green became tangled, and James stepped over the Warriors' emotional leader, an unwritten no-no in the NBA. James usually doesn't respond like that, especially if the ball is still in play. Draymond, upset, took a swing at LeBron's balls. And he takes a little swing that misses after he objected to James stepping over him. There was no foul called at the time, but in the post-game interviews, the Cavs were sure to press the point that Green took a swing at LeBron. Uh, well, I don't know what should happen. It's not my call. It's the league office there. Take a look at it. Uh, we all saw it in the locker room. Like I said, as a competitor, I love going against Draymond. Um, and, and I'm all about, you know, going out there and leaving it all on the floor. But, you know, when I get a little bit more than what, what it should be, then, um, you know, that's what caused me to have words with him. So, uh, you know, as far as the play, I think the league could take a look at it. Um, you know, obviously our locker room have seen it and uh, we'll see what they say. If Green were to be assessed one more technical, he would be suspended for a game, which is exactly what happened before game five. That was the Sunday bombshell. As it is, Draymond Green will not be allowed on the premises Monday at Oracle for this Game 5. It's long been debated. 
How much did LeBron and the Cavaliers try to goad Draymond into making that mistake, committing the technical that led to his suspension? Joe Vargan, Cleveland.com. LeBron, when you're playing Draymond, how aware are you that he's one flagrant away from a suspension, and does it affect how you go into a matchup like that? Uh, I think something like that, you're very, you're unaware. I, I didn't even know at that point in time. I asked Channing Fry, did LeBron bait Green on purpose? Of course. What do you mean, of course? <laughs> of course. Where everybody was trying to bait him. Are you joking? He shouldn't have had that many fouls. Should have been kicking people in their wee-wee. It's not our fault. <laughs> We're supposed to take advantage. Hey, if somebody's shoe is untied, I'm going to step on their laces. <laughs> no harm, no foul. It is part of the game. That's why, and listen, he knew we were baiting him. If you watch that game, everyone was trying to bait him. Everyone. Of course. What are you, and they're mad about it. You, you know what you've been mad about? The 25 other technicals, crazy technicals, right? And, but it shows you how important Draymond is, right? And we know. That. So this is more of a compliment to Draymond. And like, obviously, he would have done that to us. Look at, even right now, remember when him and Dylan Brooks are going back and forth? Dylan Brooks is trying to bait him. And he goes, I can only bait myself, right? He learned. He learned. But that's the thing. It, it literally, hell yes. We were talking so much shit to him on the bench, just trying to get him to do anything out of pocket. We all flew back across the country to the Bay for game five. Both teams practiced at the Warriors' old training facility, which was attached to the Oakland Marriott. The Warriors worked out and spoke to the media first, and they were seething about the green suspension. I mean, guys talk trash in this league all the time. You know, I'm just kind of shocked some guys take it so personal. Clay Thompson seemed to be speaking directly at LeBron. It's like, you know, it's a man's league, and I've heard a lot of bad things on that court, but... At the end of the day, it stays on the court. We're all competitive people. Shortly after Thompson spoke, the Cavs came strolling into the practice facility. LeBron wore an Undertaker t-shirt in honor of the famous wrestler to practice. Myself and the other beat writers covering the Cavs at the time, we all made a beeline for him to relay Thompson's Man's League blast. The way LeBron reacted, we knew the series was not over. What Clay said? Clay said, I guess he just got his feelings hurt. <laughs> oh my goodness uh i'm, I'm not going to comment on, on what clay said because i know where it can go from this sit in <laughs> it's so hard to take the high road i've been doing it for 13 years it's so hard to continue to do it and i'm gonna do it again um at the end of the day we got to go we got to show up and, and play better tomorrow night and if we don't then they're gonna they're gonna be uh back-to-back champions and um you know and that's it but uh i'll take the high road again Draymond was indeed suspended for Game 5, with the Warriors up 3-1 in the series. He and Warriors general manager Bob Myers infamously took in an Oakland A's game next door to Oracle Arena, watching the basketball game from their suite. Second baseman. Well, in that luxury suite is Draymond Green, who of course not playing Game 5 next door, but Draymond said, as soon as the Warriors win, I'm heading over there. So he's enjoying the A's game and watching his team very closely. Look who's right in front. 
gentleman on the left, that's Bob Myers, the GM for the Warriors, and the gentleman on the right, Marshawn Lynch. But Green wasn't going anywhere. LeBron and Kyrie scored 41 points each, and the Cavs crushed the Warriors on the road in Game 5. After the game, LeBron called Kyrie's performance one of the greatest he's ever seen in person. Another fateful moment happened in Game 5, too with Warriors center Andrew Bogut going down with an injury that knocked him out for the rest of the finals. Andrew Bogut was a menace, an absolute fucking menace. Because even when we get layups, you know how hard it is to make a layup over Draymond and Andrew Bogut coming over top? Like, it's hard enough getting by Clay. Then you have Draymond, then you have Andrew Bogut right there. When Bogut got hurt, they can only play seven guys. They couldn't play a true center. So without them playing a true center, that is when, if you watch the film, we started just absolutely ravaging the layup game, trying to get as many layups as possible. Game six in Cleveland. My son is 13 now. He was nearly six the night of game six. And for years, I tried to tell him what it was like in the building in Cleveland leading up to that game but I choke up every time. There's something about having grown up in Northeast Ohio and endured all the hard luck and then feeling the emotion of that moment. The only thing I can compare it to would be like a rabid Michael Jackson concert, right? You know, where people are passing out and all type of shit. LeBron and Kyrie in the layup line, simultaneously playing the air drums to Phil Collins in the air tonight. It was so loud in there that like people were saying stuff and it would just hear your mouth. It was just like, you're like, what the fuck? The building shook with the roar of the crowd. There was no way in God's green earth we were going to lose that game. The national anthem, all 20,000 people in the gym seemed to sing every word. We could have played Jesus, Gandhi, Buddha, the Satan, <laughs> whoever else in my grandma out there, and we're going to beat the shit out of them. Like, that's how much I think it ruined my adrenal glands for the rest of my life. And here in this city, they're saying this is the biggest game in franchise history and one of the biggest nights in the city's sports history as they try to keep alive their dream of bringing a championship to the city of Cleveland. We started grabbing more and slowing them down. It's Bedlam here in Cleveland. Perry blocked by James. And when Steph threw his mouthpiece, <laughs> that was huge. And a foul on Curry, and Curry's gonna get it with a technical. He throws his mouthpiece. Because for us, any little crack in the armor, we were like, fuck yes. Now he's upset. Now he's, you know, not doing his thing. Now it's like, we're like, it's working. The minute we saw that it was working, from Draymond getting kicked out to Steph, to now people are complaining, you know, people going on Twitter complaining about the referees. We were like, hey, we're doing it. We are doing it. Before game six, LeBron had ordered, or asked, his Cavs teammates to follow him. Then he went out and scored 41 points again. After Game 5 at Oracle, Teron Liu asked all the players for money, which he put up in the ceiling of the coach's office in the visitor's locker room. 
The Cavs were on their way back to get that money. The Warriors were wounded and frazzled. When you guys were down 3-1, everybody talked about no team had ever come back from a 3-1 deficit to win a championship in the finals. What changed in your team? What did you notice? What did you learn? Hey, man, records are meant to be broken. At the end of the day, we're a team that's been persevering all year. You know, the outside noise, you know, everything, you know, and we just, it was like, hey, at the end of the day, let's just go out and play and see what happens. And uh, we've been able to beat a great team, you know, two straight games to force a game seven. And uh, I can't wait. Game seven, a legacy etched in stone. Game seven, I told, uh, you know, I told the, uh, the staff, I said, man, I got to go in the back. I'm going to have a heart attack. I'm going to have a fucking heart attack. I'm ready to die right here. And I'm not even playing. There were at least two times when it felt like the Warriors offense would erupt and put the game out of reach. And each time, J.R. Smith answered with the key basket. During timeouts, and then at halftime, Lou went directly at LeBron, demanding that he had to do more. LeBron was incredulous, looking to tie his assistant coaches for backup, but he answered the final desperate challenge anyway. The game reached a stalemate in the middle of the fourth quarter, and it seemed like the next basket would break the game open for whomever scored it. LeBron made the defensive play of his career in ensuring Andre Iguodala did not score that basket. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup! Oh, blocked by James! LeBron James with the rejection! Game seven, like, it's the NBA final. I thought Tayshaun Prince's block on Reggie Miller was a huge block. And then I think LeBron's probably was the best block of all time, especially in the NBA finals, like, for what he did to save the game and then Kyrie come down and make the shot. Um, that block really set up everything for Kyrie to get that shot. LeBron is credited for all things when it comes to the glory days of Cavs basketball, and the block was his defining moment. It is a little ironic, however, that the greatest, most important shot was taken not by LeBron, but by Kyrie Irving, with about 50 seconds left in Game 7, a step-back three that proved to be the game winner. Irving and Curry, one-on-one. Irving puts it up. It's good! Kyrie Irving from downtown! And the Cavaliers by three! And I remember I had to call a timeout because LeBron was dead tired. <laughs> like, after running, and we just been playing, like you said, a, a nip-and-tuck game the whole game. And so, um, LeBron was tired through the block, and then we came into the timeout, and that's when we just tried to drop the play and get the switch with Kyrie and Curry and um, let Kyrie go one-on-one, and he, he made a big three. The Cavs won by four points for two reasons. One... Kevin Love played remarkably tough defense on Steph Curry, forcing him into a missed three. And two, LeBron made a free throw. James attempted a monster dunk near the end of regulation that, if he had made it, would have been the greatest in-game dunk in NBA history, given the circumstances. But he missed the dunk and was injured on the foul. LeBron flopped all over the court, holding his wrist and writhing in pain but he got up and eventually made one of two foul shots that put the game out of reach. And it put him out of reach, too. His legacy was forever made by that 2016 championship, the greatest of his storied career and the first of its kind. LeBron became just the third player ever to post a triple-double in Game 7 of an NBA Finals, with 27 points, 11 rebounds, and 11 assists. By the end of the series, he was the first player in NBA history 
to lead all players on both teams in any playoff series in scoring, rebounds, blocks, assists, and steals. For me to have been able to be a part of the, and I'm going to say this, the greatest championship in the last 20, 30 years, people have to stop saying, oh, the fake 73 and nine team, they had to earn that. That was, a, that's technically the best team ever to play basketball during a regular season. As much as people want to compare this to the nineties, statistically, that is the greatest team that has ever played basketball. And we beat them doing something that no one else has done. And just cause it's LeBron, stop devaluing that because then you devalue all the rest of us who put in the time, right? You devalue the warriors for what they are. And I will never have an opportunity to watch two teams that good, that locked in ever again, with that many Hall of Famers on the court. Watching those 10 fuckers play basketball was the greatest basketball I've ever seen in my entire life. And I go, no matter if I had worked for 10 years to try to get to that level, I still couldn't. Now for a closer look at LeBron versus Steph. Here's Marcus Thompson and Zena Keda. Time has changed the perception of the first NBA Finals matchup between the Warriors and Cavaliers, robbing the 2015 series of its significance. The 2015 NBA Finals between the Cleveland Cavaliers and the Golden State Warriors is back once again at Oracle Arena. But live, in the intensity of the moment, nothing about this showdown felt inevitable. The Warriors and Cavs splitting two games in Cleveland and this series tied up once again. With the series tied 2-2, it felt like what happened next would decide the series. It felt like one team would be on the brink of elimination, the other on the cusp of glory. Now the question, how will Cleveland respond as both teams just two wins away from an NBA championship? The Cavaliers had taken a 2-1 lead in the series as LeBron put up historic numbers. The Warriors, in the deepest waters they'd ever been at the time, answered with a strategic shift. They started game four with a small lineup, replacing center Andrew Bogut with small forward Andre Iguodala. The enhanced pace and space overwhelmed Cleveland. Game five was feeling like LeBron had figured that out too. The game was tied at 75 after LeBron James opened the fourth quarter with a jumper, a three-pointer, and an assist on an Amon Shumpert three. Oracle was nervous. So were the Warriors. It felt like they were in trouble. It felt like he was about to will his way to a championship despite having two starters, Kyrie Irving and Kevin Love, sidelined with injuries. LeBron was no stranger to making gourmet meals with leftovers. Do you feel a lot less pressure this finals run just because you are undermanned and you had some injuries uh, as opposed to previous years? Nah, I feel confident because I'm the best player in the world. But at the nine minute, 23 second mark, Stephen Curry checked back into the game. Unbeknownst to anyone in this East Oakland edifice, what happened next would be the groundwork for another layer to LeBron's legacy. It would also change the NBA forever. The best player in the world was about to get a new nemesis. Curry looking for that opening. Steps back. Crossover. Fires away. Wow! Another three from Curry! 
I'm Zena Keda. And I'm Marcus Thompson. And in this chapter of A King's Reign, we're telling the story of the king and his challenger, LeBron and Steph. On his first touch when he came in, Curry zigged and zagged off a high pick and roll and into a mid-range jumper. Bucket, 77-75. LeBron answered with a runner over Iguodala. Game was tied. Then, just under eight minutes left and the Warriors up two, LeBron drilled a deep three late in the shot clock, at least 30 feet out. Net didn't move. Five to shoot. Back out LeBron James. Puts up a three. Gets it to go. LeBron James from way downtown. And the Cavs go up by one. But Steph came right back. Crossover. Inside out dribble. Behind the back. Step back three. Matthew Dellavedova was cooked. Curry broke out the Thiz face on his way back. It was that nasty. Warriors took the lead again. 82-80. Curry steps back. Stephen Curry with some magic. Next time down, Cleveland trapped Curry, so he found his splash brother, Clay Thompson. His three-pointer put the Warriors up five. Braun wasn't done. He took his time in the post, hit a turnaround jumper over Andre Iguodala. Next time down, after a Cleveland stop, Braun drove again and set up Tristan Thompson for an easy two. The Cavaliers trailed by just one. It seemed the Warriors had no answer for LeBron, but it turned out Cleveland had no answer for Curry. Another Cleveland trap of Curry set up an open three for Iguodala. Then a Curry deflection started another Warriors fast break. Iguodala scored again. The Warriors lead was up to six with just over three minutes left. Curry used another high pick and roll to get downhill. Lefty layup, bucket, eight point lead. The next time down, after Bron split a pair of free throws, Curry rejected the screen and went ISO. Hard dribble right, snatched it behind his back, curl dribble, crossover, step back three, 10-point Warriors lead. Yeah, it was a crossover play on the right wing, and you hit him with the bop-bop, and guy leaves his feet, but he's also trying to slide on defense, and he, he almost falls back, and Steph had that, that rhythm about him when he shot it, and you know what's going in as soon as it's leaving his hands. Just when it felt like it was over, a desperate LeBron kept the anxiety alive in Oracle by drilling another deep three from the left wing. Again, net didn't move. It was just a seven-point game with 2.20 left, but Curry had the final word. Up eight with a minute and a half left, he drilled another three to dagger the Cavs. Ball game. The Warriors took the pivotal game five and control of the series. I thought he was great. I mean, you tip your hat off to a guy like that. I mean, he made I mean, his seven threes. I don't know if it was any of them not contested. Hand in his face, falling. Step backs off the off the dribble. You know I'm okay with that. We're okay with that. I mean, you know, you tip your hat to a guy like, who uh, who makes shots like that, and he's the guy that can do it in our league. He's the best shooter in our league. The Warriors went on to close out the Cavs in Game Six, winning Golden State's first championship in 40 years. The finals were over, but a new rivalry was sparked. Kobe Bryant was winding down. The Tim Duncan era of the Spurs was ending. LeBron was the undisputed king of the NBA. Yet suddenly, and seemingly out of nowhere, the Warriors became a plot twist in the script. Playing at a faster pace, shooting three-pointers at a historic clip, and spreading the floor in a way that negated the traditional big men, Golden State presented a wholly unique challenge. LeBron had a new motivation, a new level to reach. Curry would push him there. Who is the more accurate comparison to MJ? 
Is it Steph or LeBron? How can Steph Curry still surpass LeBron James on the list of the greatest players of all time? Can you see Steph ever passing LeBron in the GOAT debate? But their meeting at the summit of the NBA was probably more inevitable than accidental. LeBron's greatest career achievement, coming back from a 3-1 deficit in the finals, was sparked by a player he gravitated towards earlier. What you've got to understand about Bron and Steph is their connection goes way back. You could probably say as far back as the late 80s. Dale Curry spent his second NBA season in Cleveland, where he was traded by Utah after his rookie campaign. On March 14, 1988, the Cavaliers visited the Knicks. Dale Curry shot 7 of 15 from the field. He made his only three-point attempt, his first career three-pointer at Madison Square Garden. That same day, his wife Sonia gave birth to their first child, Wardell Stephen Curry II, in the Akron General Medical Center. Three years and four months earlier, LeBron James was born in the same hospital. I'm LeBron James from Akron, Ohio. Not too many guys from Akron or have ties to that, that city. But the first time they linked was in March of 08. Curry had gone from unknown to star of that year's NCAA tournament. He cooked Gonzaga in the first round for 40. He really made people take notice when he dropped 30 on Georgetown, the number two seed, to put Davidson in the Sweet 16. Unbelievable 17-point comeback behind Stephen Curry. The star of this stage delivers again. At the time, everybody wondered what the hell was a Davidson? And who was this little dude dropping bombs in that baggy jersey like he was Steve Francis or something? Look for Curry on the jump shot. Here he is. Can he hit this? And one. Could be the four-point play. Curry's next game was against number three Wisconsin at Ford Field in Detroit. It just so happened the Cavaliers had a day off in Detroit before playing the Pistons the next day. So LeBron went to check him out. Curry put up 33, carrying the number 10 seed to the Elite Eight. He met Bron at that game for the first time. Landry with six. Curry lets it go again. I told you, just a little bit of daylight, just a slip. That's oh, all he needs. Just like his old man. Davidson finally went down in the Elite Eight, losing a heartbreaker to Kansas. Three days later, Curry made the 20-minute jump from campus to Charlotte to see LeBron play. They had a more elongated chat, and the relationship was sparked. Nine months later, LeBron's Cavaliers were scheduled to beat the brakes off the Charlotte Bobcats on a Saturday night in December at Time Warner Arena. But Curry was set to take the court first. At noon was the showdown between North Carolina State and the nation's favorite Cinderella in Davidson. The game was moved from Raleigh, three hours away, to downtown Charlotte. Brown was in Curry's hood. Might as well see Queen City's best show. Touch the rim. Curry with the three. Oh! Looking right at LeBron James the whole way down the floor, too. Stephen Curry lights it up. LeBron's impressed in what he sees. 42 points, two away from tying a career high. There were a lot of good players in college then. Blake Griffin at Oklahoma, James Harden at Arizona State, Johnny Flynn at Syracuse, Tyreek Evans at Memphis. But LeBron was drawn to Curry. The savant in him knew something was different about this guy. He could see the future. A few months later, Curry was a pupil in LeBron's pre-draft camp. 
getting motivational lectures from the king himself. He gave me a jersey when I was in college my, at Davidson, and I still have it on the wall at my <laughs> parents' house back in Charlotte. <laughs> wow. And he wrote it, like, to the king of basketball in, uh, in North Carolina uh, and signed it and all that. So, like, I will never be too far removed from, like, where I came from in terms of this, this journey. Curry spoke about that on Draymond Green's podcast. Curry would be drafted number seven overall in 2009. His 10th NBA game was against LeBron on the road in Cleveland. The day before, LeBron opened his home to Curry. It was an important time for Curry to have a mentor. He'd been benched by Don Nelson the previous three games. Two days before he hung out with LeBron, fellow rookie guard Brennan Jennings dropped 55 points on the Warriors in a loss at Milwaukee. The next day, the Warriors traded its best player, Steven Jackson, to Charlotte. So you could imagine how good it was to get away from the Warriors' dysfunction a bit and hang out with LeBron. They watched basketball, watched some family guy, talked about life. They even knocked down a few pins at LeBron's in-house bowling alley. The next night, LeBron scored 31 points with 12 assists and a win over the visiting Warriors, inaugurating the now 14 years of competition between him and Curry. The first time Curry became a problem for LeBron was in January of 2014. The Warriors had won six straight and celebrated with the New Year's Eve in Miami. They were supposed to be destroyed by the time the Heat got to them. But Miami's game plan actually burned the Heat. They trapped Curry, taking the ball out of his hands. But the rest of the Warriors torched Miami's defense, especially David Lee. Curry had eight assists at halftime. So when Miami adjusted in the second half, leaving Curry one-on-one, he let the Heat have it. The signature jaw-dropping shot of the night was in transition. Andre Iguodala brought the ball up. He had Curry sprinting down the right side. Iguodala passed it between his legs behind him to Curry, who caught it on the move, gave LeBron a crossover, then drifted to the right corner for a deep fadeaway jumper over LeBron. Curry over LeBron. Oh, what a shot by Curry. And he sprints to the Warriors bench as the Heat take a timeout. Curry finished with 36 points and 12 assists. The Warriors upset the Heat in Miami, which set up the rematch in Oakland a month later. And Brown was ready. Curry had 29 points and 7 assists. But LeBron stole the show at Oracle. He had the jumper going. He was a monster in transition. He set up his teammates. So many thunderous dunks and pretty dimes. The Heat offense shot 54% for the game, with LeBron doing the heavy lifting. In one of the epic games in the Warriors' ascension to a dynasty, Curry and LeBron closed with a preview of what was to come. Bron rose and buried a three-pointer over Klay Thompson to put the Heat up 107-105 with 59 seconds left. But Curry answered, going to work on Mario Chalmers. Curry, pump fake, jumper, good! We're tied at 107! Bron answered with one of his head-down freight train drives against Iguodala and got to the free-throw line. Nearly made the layup, too. LeBron split the pair and Miami led by a point. Curry went at Chalmers again the next time down. He had Mario on skates. Fake, crossover, step back, crossover, layup, and the foul. When they met up at the 2014 All-Star Game, LeBron was still talking about this move on Chalmers. Are you going to give my point guard three hezzies? <laughs> you going to go here, here, and then here again? I'm like, damn, three hezzies? 
LeBron still had 14.6 seconds left and he would use them. Five years after hitting his first career buzzer beater on the same floor, James delivered again. Isolated against Iguodala, he drove left and stepped back into a three-pointer. After drilling it, leaving the Oakland audience conflicted, their beloved Warriors losing but also witnessing greatness, LeBron pulled out the silencer. Do you send multiple players at LeBron? Down to five, down make to some, three. Make somebody else beat you. A three on the way, he got it! The game is over. Yes, it is. Curry got his revenge on a big stage in 2015. After that epic Game 5, Curry scored 13 of his 25 points in the fourth quarter of Game 6 to steal the championship. This is when the rivalry turned, right here. Most people think it turned later when Curry made his champagne comments. Remember that? The Warriors' first game back in Cleveland after winning the chip January 2016? He said, hopefully it still smells a bit like champagne. Cleveland didn't like that. But that was just salt being rubbed in. The wound was opened in the finals. Despite their long relationship and the first postseason meeting, there was no big embrace at the end. Bron had watched Curry grow, helped him grow in a sense, into a champion. But he wasn't feeling so mentory. You could see it on his face. With 10.6 seconds left in the game and Iguodala at the free throw line, Bron said his goodbyes. He gave Curry a quick handshake, gave Steve Kerr one, and walked to the end of the Cavaliers bench. You could almost see the smoke coming off his head. When the buzzer sounded, he marched straight to the locker room. He was down two starters. The Cavaliers losing that series was completely understandable. Why was LeBron so mad? Because he knew, he absolutely knew, Curry was coming. The Warriors were coming, and they had a championship behind them. Bron knows precisely the kind of confidence that comes with the ring. The Warriors might be even better. The buddy-buddy stuff was done. The whole vibe changed. Curry was now an adversary. He tried to walk back the champagne quote. It may have came off the wrong way, but I heard a lot of it right back at me this summer, so it's all, all good fun. But after he dropped 35 on Cleveland in a 34-point Warriors win, no one wanted to hear all that. He was now enemy number one of LeBron. Six months after his champagne comments, Curry burned the Cavaliers again in Game 4 of the 2016 Finals. The Cavaliers were up eight points in the third quarter, but found themselves down 10 after a three-pointer by Curry with just over three minutes left. Curry scored 13 points in the fourth quarter, finishing with 38, staving off the desperate Cavaliers. It felt like the series was over. No team had ever come back from a 3-1 deficit, and the Warriors were in command. Golden State had won an NBA record 73 games. The Warriors were on the verge of a gentleman's sweep of the Cavaliers, who had all of their starters this time. It was going to be the punctuation of a legendary season, one that planted these Warriors among the greatest teams ever. But LeBron found another gear. Curry, on the Old Man and the Three podcast, spoke about the insane heights reached on the floor during the 2016 finals. I've never seen two guys play at that level for three straight for three play, straight games is the games. craziest thing I've ever yeah. seen like Bron and Kyrie were just on like we play well they just play better you can always tip your hat to somebody who just outplayed you the rivalry really turned up after the 3-1 comeback trolling the Warriors became a sport 
Brian got off the plane in Cleveland holding the trophy and wearing an Ultimate Warrior t-shirt. His Halloween party had a dessert table with cookies of a curry tombstone. One decoration had a skeleton drummer covered in cobwebs. His drum said, 3-1 lead. When the Warriors signed Kevin Durant, effectively usurping LeBron's authority in the league, they became the most despised team in the NBA. They owned their new status by declaring themselves supervillains. LeBron was a national hero who became a sympathetic figure, having to take on the stacked Warriors. They blew through the 2017 playoffs, going 16-1. They would have swept the Cavs if not for one scorching hot night in Game 3. Cleveland made a finals record 24 three-pointers to delay the inevitable. It was clear with Durant the Warriors were too much, but LeBron had nothing else to prove. He slayed the 73-9 Warriors, made NBA Finals history, Nothing was ever going to top that. And you know what? The beef with Curry would eventually thaw. Yeah, they battled. They went at each other. It's like Nas said. They had words, but the best supposed to clash at the top. But after facing each other every year in the finals, after experiencing a fellowship that only could be forged on summits, their rivalry started shifting back to friendlier realms. It all started to change around the 2018 All-Star Game. The NBA switched the format to have two captains choosing their teams, like the old school playground setup. The first captains were Brian and Steph. They had to hop on the phone and nail down their teams, but they ended up doing more than just selecting all-stars. They caught up. They talked like the friends they'd always been. No more pettiness, no more iciness, just honor. It was back to love between them. Who else do you want to play with? Um, in today's game, Steph Curry's the one that I want to play with, for sure. LeBron detailing it all on the shop. Lethal! Lethal, man. When he get out of his car, you better guard him right from the moment he pulls up to the arena. As soon as he get out of his car, you better oh, guard him. Oh, sorry, so guard him. Yeah, better guard him. You might want to get. The, you might want to guard him when he get out of the bed. The parking deck. And in terms of like him picking out one player that he would want besides his son that he would want to play with. Curry on Draymond Green's podcast and my name comes up, it is definitely, it's surreal because I'll never be so far removed from the time like I was in Detroit playing in the Sweet 16 game. And this dude was maybe his fourth or fifth year in the league. And he's coming to my game, like su supporting and cheering and doing all that stuff. What is visible when you watch LeBron and Curry now, when you hear them talk about each other, is how they both clearly understand their place in the game, their status, Together, they represent something more significant as the two biggest stars in the NBA, in American sports, really. They are ambassadors for not only how the game is played, but how it is revered. They've both done more than they could ever imagine in basketball. They can now simply marvel together at what they've accomplished and how they've pushed each other. Their relationship began with LeBron's awe and Curry's admiration, with LeBron's respect and Curry's reverence. It became heated, it got testy, but it's back where it belongs. Because you can't tell the story of LeBron without mentioning Steph Curry. And you can't tell the story of Curry without LeBron. It seems it was destined to be this way. Thank you for listening to A King's Reign. In the next episode, that time when LeBron became a rom-com actor. We would laugh at how upset we were 
that he's, you know, one of the greatest basketball players of all time and also is good that he's that funny and can just step in and do it. Judd Apatow and Bill Hader on what it was like working with LeBron during the making of the movie Trainwreck. Rob Peterson is the editorial supervisor and creator of A King's Reign. Joe Varden is the consulting producer. Kent Garrison is the theme music composer. Reporting for the series was provided by the Athletic NBA staff. Andrew Schlecht is the host of the series. Matt Havia and Mike Smeltz are the executive producers.